This is the Ogilvy Podcast. I'm Chris Saletti. And I'm Carter Pearson. So I actually look at mixed reality as a spectrum that goes from 100% transparent or the real world all the way up to 100% opaque, which is a virtual reality, or you're basically completely encompassed in a manufactured world. It's not just a better TV. What's the first thing that comes to your mind when you think about virtual reality? The first thing that comes to mind is people with those goofy-looking goggles on and falling over. Falling over? Why? <laughs> yeah, they fall over because they get so, like, trapped in what they're seeing. Yeah. And, like, the motion that they start to move and they fall over. I went to a thing at Facebook. They, like, had this pop-up in Bryant Park. And they had bars next yeah. to people so they could, like, hold on to them so they wouldn't fall over. And they had, like, someone next to you, too, to make sure that you were, like, fine. It was hilarious. It was really funny. I refused to do it, but... Virtual reality requires yep. safety. There you go. <laughs> it makes me think of, like, the video games when we were kids where you put, like, big headsets on. And sometimes at, like, amusement parks or museums and it takes you to, like, a cartoon kind of place, but you actually feel like you're there. The age of Minority Report is upon us now. So, obviously the phrase virtual reality induces differing reactions and emotions in people. But where does it stand now? Where is it going? What will its effect on people actually be? Virtual reality isn't a pipe dream. The New York Times VR app, Oculus Rift, Samsung Gear, all these things are now household names. But there's so much potential for growth in this industry. Ten years ago, virtual reality was something of science fiction. But today... If virtual reality is done correctly and you follow some of the, the basic laws of physics and that your other senses that help uh, help guide you through everyday life are in a place where you feel comfortable, you will have complete immersion. That complete immersion is the difference between something like Pokemon Go, Samsung Gear, and experiences that will encompass all of our senses in the future, like the feelies in Brave New World or the Haunted House video game in that really creepy episode of Season 3 of Black Mirror. So why do we want to talk about virtual reality? Why are we doing an episode on this? Obviously, it's really cool. And it's getting more popular, and it's consistently in tech news, but... Dystopianism is in right now. 1984 is one of the the bestsellers on Amazon or any other bestseller list. And we're wondering less about the immediate future of VR and more about its larger implications of this brave new world of technology. Anything we've learned about human relationship to tech, we're more likely to move forward quickly and with near reckless abandon. Um, If you just think about the way tech is involved from computers that are as big as a room to now I have something more powerful than a spaceship in my pocket. Uh, We move forward very quickly, and we tend to move quick and break things. It's even a a motto in Silicon Valley. But that's pretty scary when you're talking about virtual reality. Fail often and fail fast. Yeah. In, In this case, it could be fail scary. So people are always concerned about new technologies. Some of their concerns are valid, and a lot of times they aren't, and people exaggerate the potential negative effects of a new technology. Yeah, like with the printing press, that's obviously been a net positive for all of humanity. I mean, unless maybe you're the Catholic Church. But other than that, net positive. Today, we see things like social media. There's a lot of conversation about whether those things are positive or negative. But one thing is for certain is that people have quickly adopted them. 
and that they have the potential to do a lot of good. Yeah. So we want to learn more about virtual reality in this sense. What are the good potential effects and the negative potential effects? But to do that, we need to learn about what it does for us and what it does to us. And so we talked to some experts about how VR is used, what it does to our bodies, and where the industry is going in the future. Got this safety way off the hash. He's going to help over there. Looks like the corner's pressing. Got a corner cat coming. We killed this play. Just take your eyes as you would through the pass protection right here. Eyes on the safety. In case you're not familiar with American football, that all might have sounded like a bunch of jargon. But what you just heard was a clip of Stanford University quarterback Kevin Hogan and his coach reviewing defensive coverages and audible options. Pretty standard stuff for a quarterback to practice. But they're not reviewing film, as you'd expect an athlete and his coach to do. Instead, he's getting in reps, repetitions of a play from the comfort of a classroom rather than in full pads on a practice field. Stanford, along with many other college football programs, uses the Striver Virtual Reality Simulator to practice the mental part of the game without encountering any physical stress. We talked with Logan Mulvey, head of content at Striver Labs, about exactly how the idea came about to use VR as a training device, among other things. We set out to solve problems originally using VR as a medium. We felt like it was, it was a beautiful medium to train people because mistakes are free you could get an unlimited amount of repetition in that immersed world without having to set foot on a football field. VR has proven to work perfectly in giving people that extra edge. It's been well documented with the athletes that use virtual reality to train that they've done very well and and been able to overcome certain aspects of their game that they, they may not have had time to solve before VR came about. All right. So I, I love this idea. And I think there's a ton here to unpack. The The first thing that stood out to me was that there's so much more to physical activity than just the physical part. Chris, what do you think constitutes a full repetition of something? Well, I think in, in places like athletics, repetitions or reps are, are so much thought of as, as solely the physical aspect of them. But but of course, to excel in, in athletics and, and many other areas, you need to pair the physical with the mental. And I feel like a lot of times the mental aspect of sports in, in particular is something that it, it seems to be inherent in a person or not. Either they're a smart athlete or they're not. And they can get faster and bigger and stronger, but what sets them apart is the mental aspect of the game. And so I don't know if the question really is what constitutes a full rep versus not, or now that the idea of a rep is changing with with something like VR, with the technology that allows people to study the mental aspect of a game in such a more immersive fashion than they used to be able to. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense because, I mean, really you talk about someone having like a, a good sense of the game. And in, in the past, the only way to get that was through full repetition and playing sports for hours and hours a day. So I think it's really interesting that tools like this would allow someone to hit the weight room for two hours and then hit the VR room for one hour and have sort of accelerated mental development to allow them to catch up with someone who's been you know, playing organized sports since they were, or an organized sport since they were seven years old. Do you think that this counts towards Malcolm Gladwell's 10,000 hours theory? So anybody not familiar with that is Malcolm Gladwell has a theory that if you practice something or do something for 10,000 hours, that's sort of the threshold where you become an expert in that field. Uh, so whether or not you agree with that theory or not, I know there's a lot of skeptics of it out there. Will VR allow people to, to get more practice than they would have normally been able to and, and sort of become an expert or a genius in something more quickly. 
I don't think so, but I also don't think it hurts. So the the famous example from that book is like the Beatles going to Germany for I don't know how long and playing three straight years of eight hour sets in German strip clubs and they're just playing and playing and playing because they're getting paid to and they if they want to eat they have to play right. basically. <laughs> um, and I don't think if they played those same sets on a virtual reality version of Rock Band that they would have become this great you know live band that they were. Yeah, but can't hurt. No, and the virtual reality version of Rock Band is going to be the greatest video game of all time. I'm just going to say that. That's very true. Yeah, I probably won't leave my house. One other interesting piece from Logan is... Generally, the teams that use VR in the way that's recommended by the experts are winning. They're winning teams. And I think VR is just one tiny slice of why they're winning, but it overall shows that that team and that front office and the, the, the group running the show understands that you need to be open-minded. If you looked at our client roster and then you looked at the private usage reports that only we get to see, the teams that are using it on a daily basis are winning teams. I, I just think things like dangerous, like first responder type training or, or anything that deals with where you need lots of practice and iteration in a potentially dangerous environment but you could do it in this safe kind of environment where you can get great analytics from it and, and teach in a more effective way. That was Matt Johnson, head of innovation at Bottle Rocket. So safety is a huge concept as well. Um, it works in sports with concussions, and it definitely works with first responders and firefighters. The more training you can do without being in physical harm's way, the longer your career can last, whether that's in boxing, football, fighting fires, anything. So outside of people using VR to do their various jobs better or to educate people, there are a lot of therapeutic benefits as well. Getting engaged left and right. Contact right, contact right. Back of our vehicle just got hit. 20 Trillion Marines up there that got hit. It's pretty catastrophic. To dig deeper into the therapeutic benefits, we talked to Dr. Skip Rizzo, also known as the Ayatollah of virtual reality. I'm a clinical psychologist and I direct the Medical Virtual Reality Lab at the University of Southern California Institute for Creative Technologies. Who works with a variety of virtual reality and artificial intelligence programs. What we do in our lab is basically we focus on on the four primary uh, research areas of psychological applications, cognitive applications, uh, physical or motor applications, and the development of virtual human agents, characters that can exist in a virtual environment that aren't just simply props, but maybe have some level of AI. Can you explain that to me like I'm a third grader? A lot of times people come back from either deployment and they're having issues, but they don't want to admit they're having issues. They don't even know if they're really having issues or not. They don't want to go see a shrink. That's like the last thing on their list. There's still a stigma, especially in hyper-masculine settings like the military or sports, with seeing a professional psychologist. So Dr. Rizzo and his team have been much more successful in bringing servicemen and women therapeutic sessions with virtual reality. I would predict that this would be a type of therapy that would appeal more to a digital generation. You know, young service members that kind of grew up well at home with this technology, familiar with it and everything. And it's always a hard sell to get someone to commit to seeking treatment, and especially this kind of treatment. 
you're going to be asked to confront and process the things you've been avoiding, the horrors that you've seen, the, the emotions that are painful. Go back and confront these things that, that really are haunting you, that you try to avoid thinking about at all costs. And by doing that repetitively over and over in a safe, supportive environment with a clinician, you start to see the anxiety dissipate. But he's quick to say that. It's not like some magic bullet. By going into VR, it's going to fix me. Maybe they feel safer when they're, I mean, they're being exposed to the stimuli, but they're talking about what they're doing. They reported more symptoms of, of mental health challenges like PTSD when talking with a virtual agent than when they, when they come back, they have to fill out what's called a post-deployment health assessment. That was really, really interesting from Dr. Rizzo because when he says, you know, people disclose more, they feel less at risk when interacting with what they think is just software or just a machine. Immediately what came to my mind was the idea of confession and that you're almost putting up a barrier between yourself and someone else. And that allows you to just be a little bit more comfortable with maybe releasing information that you sort of hold near and dear. And I think the idea with this type of therapy is sort of similar to the idea of confession. I mean, they're not obviously repenting for anything, but the idea that you can get something off your chest and then feel better is actually a very old and a very human thing to do. And it's just being augmented by this new system to do it. Yeah. And it's, I would, I would even go a little further. It's not just that it's augmenting it, it's augmenting it in a much more human way. If you're in a a virtual setting where you're talking to a to a virtual human, there's a barrier there still. But when you're able to simulate a human setting like that, it seems like that provides a much better benefit. So when this is all going on, what exactly is happening in the brain? People with PTSD that, uh, you know, their amygdalas are, you know, firing left and right with any kind of a cue or reminder of what they went through. Now, by repeatedly exposing the person and having them narrate, generate their experience, but in a safe place, that amygdala lights up, but because nothing bad happens, it starts to light up a little bit less. And as a person talks about it more, you get another component. So you're getting this sort of conditioning and learning process uh, where there's no bad consequences, there's bad memories, but there's no bad consequences. We're not under any illusion, we're erasing memories or anything, but we're trying to adjust the emotional reaction to a user's or a patient's experience of the past. Okay, so let's take a little bit of a step back to our original thesis. Clearly, virtual reality is being used for some beneficial, phenomenal things. Training and treatment, potential to keep people safer, make people better at their jobs, remove harm or physical threats. It's showing some good signs of being able to help people in society, and it should be able to continue to improve and build on those benefits in the future. There's no telling that as the technology improves, as people working with it understand it more, the potential positives can be incredible. Virtual reality is able to help in these therapeutic ways because of its effect on the brain. It's actually changing the way our brain functions, building or creating new pathways. So as more and more people use virtual reality for all sorts of different things, let's take a little bit larger view of some of the potential negatives that could come about as a result of this. So now it's time for the section of the pod tentatively titled, This is Your Brain on Virtual Reality. We talked with Dr. Mayank Mehta, the professor of 
physics and astronomy, neurology, and neurobiology at UCLA. Yes, he's really a professor of all of those things. And he's trying to answer questions like, what happens to our dreams because of VR? Or how might VR affect how people react to the built environment around them? Someone could argue, well, you know, what is big deal about virtual reality? It's the same thing as watching TV, just more immersive TV. Is that really the case? So why isn't VR just a bigger, better TV? But there is one kind of abstract thought that we all have, and not only humans, but even animals have, which is about space and time abstract space and time, such as space between us. It creates the perception that you are in that space, which is not done by pretty much any other uh, previous versions of entertainment systems. So when you watch TV, even on today's large, super clear 4K HD TVs, your sense of space and time isn't affected. And when you walk into a room, you're able to quickly perceive the space around you, and that's provided by the room that you're physically in. Dr. Mehta and his team began by seeking to understand how our brain creates the perception of abstract time and space. And they decided to use VR on rats. Yes, that's correct. Rats are using virtual reality. So get with the program, people. They used rats to see how the brain reacts to changes in the perception of space. But the effects that VR had on their brains, and specifically the hippocampus, was quite interesting. In virtual reality, 60% of the brain shut down. I haven't seen any manipulations, other manipulations that us or anybody else has done that gives you such large shutdown of those neurons in any condition. So that large shutdown of neurons on that part of the brain in virtual reality is very surprising. When you are in the virtual world, only some of your senses are consistent with the changes in the virtual views that are changing. And under most conditions, except virtual reality, pretty much. When you move, everything moves consistently. Your legs movement is consistent with the movement of your arms, the movement of the breeze, the change in sound, change in smell, everything is consistent. And that consistency is broken in virtual reality because different senses are telling you different things. Those fundamental laws of physics about how much of your movement causes how much movement in the visual scene and sound, those are being broken in virtual reality and that is causing, we think, these abnormal patterns. When you experience something in virtual reality, whether it is totally amazingly compelling or the case I wanted to make was that totally boring, trivial, it's very likely there is going to change at least the content of their sleep and their memory activity patterns during their dreams at least that day. And who knows what happens long term. If you go by a current day understanding of scientists, that altered activity pattern during sleep will change the wiring diagram of not only the hippocampus but the rest of the brain as well. And that will change the memory for pretty much the rest of life. So virtual reality is and will continue to have an effect on our brains. And we need to keep an eye on that. Speaking of eyes, we talked to Dr. Marty Banks, professor of optometry and vision science at UC Berkeley, who is doing some very interesting research into how VR affects our eyes. There could be a variety of causes for discomfort when you look at images in a head-mounted display. One that we explored is what's called divergence accommodation conflict, and uh, that arises because these displays are stereoscopic. They present 
different images to the two eyes. And by doing that, they can create the appearance of an object behind the display screen or in front of the display screen or whatever. And so the eyes converge, point at that object behind the screen or in front of the screen. But the eyes also have to accommodate to focus so that you see a sharp image. And because the light's coming from the screen, the only sensible place to focus or accommodate is to the screen. And that's what causes this virgin's accommodation conflict. You might have to converge your eyes behind the screen while you focus your eyes at the screen. And that's unnatural. The brain is not hooked up, not wired up to do that. So it sounds like a lot of the the issues that you see is when there's almost a malfunction on the part of the game or experience creator. Is that fair to say? No, I think it's a little more challenging than that. The first one, the Virgin's Combination Conflict, uh, there's no easy fix for that. That's just there. One thing you could do is just have all your content at the screen, but then you lost your 3D effect. So, you know, nobody wants that. And uh, so people are working on technologies that would either minimize or eliminate that problem, but I'm not really aware of anything that is ready for prime time yet that, um, that really fixes that problem. So that one's just, that one's inherent to the medium. Is this analogous to, um, like when I was younger and I would be watching a sports game on TV, I would want to sit as close as possible to the television. And my mom would yell at me and say, no, no, scoot, like, scoot back, you're going to burn your eyes out, basically. Yeah. <laughs> is that is that effect sort of, is it similar to that with VR, or it, is there an it, effect it similar to that? It is related. I'm, I'm glad you brought that up, because that one's a real concern. We're noticing that people are more and more likely to become nearsighted in our society. In some Asian societies now, uh, young adults, uh, probability of their nearsight is like 95%, extremely high. Uh, in our society, it's, I don't know the exact number, but it's, it's over half of young adults are nearsighted. And that was not true uh, 50 years ago. The gene pool has not changed, right? It doesn't, doesn't change that quickly. So it's something in our environment, and a lot of us think that it's uh, people doing near work, looking at cell phones, looking at tablets. There's a pretty emerging belief now that the retina tries to kind of move to get to where the image is. So if you spend a lot of time doing near work, that the retina tries to grow to make the eye longer so that the image is then formed sharply at the eye. So you did it by moving the retina. Now that doesn't happen overnight, right? That takes time. But uh, we're definitely seeing Kids now have longer eyes than they used to. They're more nearsighted, as I said. Uh, we're having to rethink how we do corrections for nearsightedness because of that. And it all could be due to the increasing um, availability of technology where, where people look at it up close. So it's not at all an old wives' tale. It's a, it's a real thing. So where do you stand on VR? Well... I mean, we talked with a lot of smart people and a lot of people who were smarter than me, especially. And most of them seem pretty optimistic on this. I mean, 
there was some pretty scary stuff about how, you know, our eyes have changed more in the last 50 years than at any time in human history. Um, a problem that's not germane, just say VR. No, that's It's a all, larger trend with technology. Because everybody puts their phone right here. Phones and tablets and small apartments with big screens on the, the TV, on yeah. the wall, you know, right next to you. So. That's very bad. And for, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Don't put, don't hang a TV on a fake wall. Just don't do it, everyone. It's, it's a bad idea. Um, but there's a ton of good stuff coming out of VR as well. I think the idea of training the mental aspect of anything is is really, really interesting and could be powerful, whether you're talking about sports or whether you're talking about something uh, more in an office setting where you are helping to train people work in close proximity and on teams with people who they maybe don't have a lot in common with other than their job. Yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, I think just thinking in, in a larger context of, of empathy, having the ability to sort of travel the world uh, from the comfort of your own couch. One of the most powerful things about art and television and film is is the ability to see how other people live, uh, see the problems that other people go through that you don't notice in your life or that you don't go through in your own life. And it, the visuals help a lot, but I think VR is going to take that to a whole other level. Yeah, I, th- I think the idea of don't judge a man until you've walked a mile in his shoes, well, in Till now, you couldn't walk in his shoes, and now, you—I mean, you literally could. Yeah. If yeah, that man it, wore a VR camera. Right. <laughs> right. And yeah, and just speaking back to your 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 point about sports and training, I, I think any time you can sort of shelter people more from from the unnecessary physical tolls that that they can experience is a good thing. I mean, we don't want to, you know, as sports fans, we don't want sports to just be played in some virtual reality computer simulation we do want to watch actual human beings compete in a physical contest and there's injury risk inherent in that but do people need to be practicing physically as hard as they are now maybe not and and if virtual reality can help people train and get better at their jobs without uh, the risk of injury I think that's a good thing. One word that you said there that was really intriguing to me is that the idea of shelter. And I do worry a little bit that if virtual reality allows people to have so many experiences virtually without actually going to physically experience those things, there is a little bit of an element of shelter being provided by virtual reality from the world. And it could have the reverse effect where rather than having more empathy for someone else, you actually have less because you say, okay, I went to Sweden via virtual reality and it was stupid rather than (laughs) actually like visiting Sweden and taking the good and the bad and, and anything else that sort of comes with traveling. Yeah. Uh, This speaks to my personal uh, skepticism with VR and and the way, when I think of it, I'm not thinking in terms of the next, 20, 30, even 50 years. I mean, I'm thinking, you know, in terms of like full-on simulations. To me, the natural evolution of that is because it's supposed to simulate a real environment. Simulate life. Simulate life. Virtual reality. It's literally in the title. People are going to keep improving on this technology until they get to the point where it becomes indistinguishable from real life. I don't know if that will ever happen. And if it does, I don't know if if it will be 100 years or 1,000 or 2,000 years from now, I don't know. But that to me is the natural place where virtual reality is going. Again, not something we have to worry about in the next, in our, and I, I don't think we'll have to worry about this in, in our lifetimes. Right. But to me, 
that's that's a, just a very crazy and potentially dangerous thing. Yeah, I mean, we we mentioned dystopianism at the at the top of the pod here. Um, but I don't even think you have to go towards like dystopian fiction or art to really see um, how this could be problematic. I mean, Wally is a children's movie about what happens when people become so enthralled with their television or games uh, that they don't move and they just ride around in cars all day and robots bring them food and clean right. up their trash. So it's not even necessarily dystopian. It's just if if human beings easily become addicted to things, whether that's technology or drugs or alcohol or yep. sex or anything. Um, and if we have a technology that continues to sort of activate those like pleasure sensors in our brain through sort of new and different experiences or just by watching the same Grateful Dead concert 75 times <laughs> and feeling like we're in the first row, we're going to keep going back to that well until it stops like giving us the dopamine high. Right. Yeah, it's it just it sounds alarmist, but if you could have an amazing experience via virtual reality without having to get up and go do it, why wouldn't you? I, I can see a world where people are choosing. Look at all these amazing amazing things I have available to me if I just put this headset on, yeah, or sit in or in a new age, you know, sit into this pod that takes my entire body into a new place. Yeah, I think behavior with other less advanced technologies like movies or TV shows or sporting events already says if people can get 90% of the experience from their couch, they would rather have that than expending all of the extra energy and capital it takes to physically go to the event. If they can get 90% of the experience or in some, in some ways a better experience. Yeah. Because if you think of going to a concert, not just as the experience of being at the concert, but in going there, coming back, waiting online to go to the bathroom, waiting online to get a beer, all that stuff. That's the whole part of the experience. You can take out all the negatives and just have the positive. Agreed. Why wouldn't you do it? So obviously opinions on virtual reality and the level it will play in our lives moving forward are mixed. But I think we should give the last word here to the Ayatollah VR, Dr. Skip Rizzo. I'm more of an optimist on this. You know, mm. I tend to think people will create exciting, enriching experiences, give people the opportunity to see things from different perspectives or to you know, visit virtual places. I'm hoping it will carry over in some positive way to everyday life. Thank you to Dr. Mayank Mehta, Dr. Skip Rizzo, Dr. Marty Banks, Logan Mulvey, and Matt Johnson. Thanks to them, we're a lot smarter and a bit less scared about the future of virtual reality. This has been an Ogilvy production. Our sound engineer is Ken Meyer, and our music and special effects are produced by Alan Hotchkiss. You, you, you gonna do now, you, you, you gonna do now, you.